Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy the Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon for the low monthly price of $3, which gets you a weekly newsletter, or $5, which gets you our bonus episodes. Recent bonus episodes have included fun discussions of Midsummer and Hobbs and Shaw, and upcoming episodes include some talk about succession. To subscribe to our Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here with Scott Tobias and Genevieve Kosky. We last saw Tasha Robinson driving off into the Hollywood Hills, possibly headed toward Acapulco, but we hope to see her again someday. This week, we're traveling back in time to the Los Angeles of the late 1960s, twice via films that look back on the era with a mix of wistfulness and anger. Sorry, I didn't really like that read. Genevieve, can I do another pass? Sorry, you only get one shot. That doesn't seem right. We flub things and we do them all the time and our listeners never know. You and Dan, the Snake Jakes, are really good at editing out our mistakes. Well, that's true. But this week, I feel like we should honor the spirit of both films we're discussing. Because each, in their own way, are about how mistakes can't be undone and the past can't be rewritten. So if, and this is just a wild hypothetical, Scott were to flub a line and start swearing in frustration, it's going to be in the episode? Hey! I'm not saying that has ever happened. I'm just putting it out there as a hypothetical. Correct. Like I said, it wouldn't be true to either of these films to re-edit what we've done. But, you know, both of these films feature a, a lot of creative editing. Uh, bending time via editing has been one of Tarantino's signature touches from the start, and Hal Ashby was known as one of the best editors in the business before he became a director. Mm, nope, I'm going to have to stay true to my principles here. Can you at least tell us about our pairing? Sure. First, we'll be talking about Shampoo, an elegiac comedy set on the night of the 1968 presidential election, written by Robert Towne and directed by Hal Ashby. Shampoo stars Warren Beatty, who also produced the film and had a heavy hand in shaping it, who can't resist seducing his clientele, a proclivity that leads to trouble when he finds himself forced to socialize with lovers, whose ranks include characters played by Lee Grant, Goldie Hawn, and Julie Christie, and a jealous husband played by Jack Warden. And in next week's episode, we'll look at another film that involves a lot of driving from neighborhood to neighborhood in late 60s Los Angeles. Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, a film set a few months prior to and on the evening of the Manson family killings of August 1969. Both films are at heart comedies, but there's a sadness beneath their surfaces. In Shampoo, Beatty's character fumbles his way from one embarrassing situation to the next while ignoring the seismic change taking place beneath his feet. In Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Tarantino conjures up a lost moment in time as the film follows characters who look out on an uncertain future and fear what unhappy endings might await them. We'll be right back after the break. Was that okay? Oh, for sure. But you're actually going to edit this and make us sound good, right? Oh, oh yeah, that was a bit. Columbia Pictures presents Shampoo. It's the story of a Beverly Hills hairdresser named George. George! 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 George. George is great. Yeah, George is great. And all the beautiful people he does. Listen, you're great. I thought you were great. Baby, you're great. What about me? You're great. Slow down. You move too fast. Very weird, George. I know, baby, but you're great, baby. Believe me, you are great. You got to make the morning last. I've had these dreams lately. What dreams? Somebody gets me. 
and they throw me around the room and I try to run away. Kicking down the cobblestones. You're my mother's hairdresser. Yeah. Be a little groovy. Set in November of 1968, Shampoo opens and closes with the Beach Boys Wouldn't It Be Nice, a song that yearns for a future that can't come fast enough. But by the time of the film's release, that future had already arrived and wasn't as rosy as the song imagined it would be. America had entered the Gerald Ford era, that hazy, indeterminate period that followed the resignation of Richard Nixon in 1974 after just five divisive, deceitful years in office. The better tomorrow the characters of Shampoo had dreamed of had never arrived. But as the film opens, they don't know what's coming. In fact, they don't give much thought to the bigger world around them at all, beyond what it can give them. For George, played by Warren Beatty, that's maybe his own shop, and with it the independence and freedom of working on his own. But it certainly means a continuation of the life he's living now in some form, one in which he floats from woman to woman who appreciate what he can do to their hair, but love the attention paid to the rest of their bodies even more. It's when feelings enter the picture that George has trouble. We first meet him interrupting his lovemaking with Felicia, a wealthy patron played by Lee Grant, to take a call from Jill, an insecure young actress played by Goldney Hahn. His entanglements only get more complicated over the next 36 or so hours, as he flits from Felicia to Jill to Jackie, played by Julie Christie, an old lover who's now mistress to Felicia's husband, Lester, a wealthy businessman played by Jack Warden. You almost need a scorecard to keep track of it all, and that doesn't even include Felicia's teenage daughter, played by Carrie Fisher, and other minor players, all of whom George treats with the same slightly puzzled affection and attentiveness until someone else distracts him and he leaves them in the cold. He's a talented professional and a warm presence, but he's also a man who's starting to realize, maybe, that he's pushed his current way of living as far as it will go. His affairs have started to bump against one another, his lover's patience has started to grow thin, and he's haunted by bad dreams or at least one bad dream, the one in which his life remains the same until he's the unthinkable age of 50. Then there's Jackie, the woman whose memory he can't quite shake and who seems to drift back into his life at just the right time. Only maybe it's not the right time. As the night of the election stretches on, another drama plays out in the background, one in which Nixon promises to unite the country and his running mate Spiro Agnew advises a return to traditional values. The product of a new, more permissive era, George finds himself surrounded by those who want to turn back the clock without him realizing the implications of their beliefs. Time is running out for him and for the 60s California in which he and his friends and lovers live, a kind of day-glow bubble destined to pop. Early in the film, Jill imagines hearing gunshots echoing through the hills around LA, and it's almost as if those echoes come from the future. Beatty and Town worked on Shampoo for years, but the time served the film well, giving them and director Hal Ashby the distance with which to reflect and giving Beatty that much more time to develop a self-awareness about his public perception. Beatty is, unlike George, a smart man, and though Beatty and Town modeled George after several L.A. hairstylists, it's hard not to see bits of Beatty's own famously active love life in the character. He dated both Han and Christie, and Fisher once recalled him offering to, quote, alleviate the burdens of her virginity. 
It makes my day, George tells Jackie. It makes me feel like I'm going to live forever. But he's not. No one is. And by the film's end, even George seems to have woken up enough to realize this. Well, you're looking great, baby. What are you doing later? <laughs> Whatever you say. We have this political thing tonight. Could you come me out at the house? Sure. Watch, we went to the bank? Yeah. For a long? Yeah. You really want your own shot? Yeah. Why don't you see Lester? What? Your husband? Yes. What about? The shop. I think you'd be a good investment. I don't mind telling you. Hey, listen, baby, I'm a star. I'm a star. George. Hey, baby. Uh, see a lot of police. I already said hello. Oh. George, when can we talk? Well, right in the middle of work now. I know, but this is important. I have a decision to make. How about whether or not I'm going? Going where? Egypt. Oh, honey, uh, did they offer you the job yet? No, but I, but I think they might. Uh, wait, wait a minute, I'll be right back. I don't know why I need so, George, is she the one with the pancreaticals? I don't know. Uh, they didn't offer you the job I yet? still want your feelings about it. Uh... After work, can we talk after work? But I never know when you're working and when you're not Neither working. Do I, baby. George, George, do you know what that Lillian Berkovici just did? Right there after I sprayed her, she touched it. Then she played it and made it all into something else. Now I don't know what it is. You know, you just gotta be. I can't stand to talk I'm to her busy, on the phone. Anyway, I really think you would be a good investment. Great. I wouldn't tell Lester if I didn't think so. I mean, it. I mean it or I wouldn't say it. Hey, Dennis. Alicia looks great that way, huh? Right. right. All right. So, Scott and Genevieve, what's your history with this film and, and what did you what did you make of it? This was my first time seeing the film. I certainly knew of it, but mostly in the context of Beatty's career and sort of reflected the peak of his Hollywood Lothario uh, you know, persona or whatever. I knew it was like a very successful film, but had had never seen it. And funnily enough, I, I, I watched this film with my mom and she was like, oh, it'll be great. I haven't seen it since it was in the theaters. It's been so long. And we watched it together. And when it was over, she was like, I never saw that. <laughs> the <end of> theater. <laughs> so, so she also just like, I think had sort of absorbed it enough to the point where she believed she had, had seen it, um, which is... Uh, I knew I hadn't seen it, but I did kind of feel like I knew what this movie was going into it. And it was to a certain extent what I was expecting. Um, but I was really uh, not expecting the three really great female leads in this movie and the performances there and sort of the almost screwball comedy, uh, you know, tenor it takes on, especially at the uh, the election night uh, banquet. I enjoyed it a lot. It feels like a crowd-pleasing film. And like, I certainly, after hearing you deliver a keynote on it, Keith, and, you know, thinking about it in the context of this pairing, I can certainly see the, you know, the deeper resonances that are going on there. But I can also see how this is just, this would just be a a fun movie that you, you would have a good time at, laugh a lot, you know, see a lot of pretty people and maybe not really engage with a whole lot beyond that. So I'm glad we're doing that uh, in this context, because I think there there is a little more there. I think the end is so melancholy. You know, I, th- I think it, it, it's sort of the, you, you've, you know, you laugh your way through the first parts and they're like, oh, wait, there's actually some implications to what you've just seen. You yeah. Know? But how about you, Scott? Is- uh, my history was it was part of the great undergraduate deluge of films yeah. that i was watching at the library that included all of hal ashby's classics except for Harold and Maude, which i caught way 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 later mm-hmm. and wrote a piece about for the av club so i 
Uh, I had seen it there, and I, my impression of it at the time was that it was just not as substantial a film as Ashby's other classics. And that impression sort of stayed with me for a little while while I was watching it again. But the thing is, the film is a real grower. Like, mm-hmm. like it just, it, it, and I think it has to do with Ashby's approach to this material, which is to take what, as Genevieve said, what is a screwball comedy and not play it as you would expect a screwball comedy to be played. It doesn't have, it's not snappy, you know, it's, right. it, it, it's kind of slow to develop. And I mean, it, it does get you to this place where they're at the party and, George is confronted by all of these women he slept with and this man that he's cuckolded and it's this big mess that in a screwball comedy is that I mean it's the payoff that you're working towards and it's certainly a, a genre that Robert Town had to know backwards and forwards if not Warren Beatty but Ashby's approach to everything is so California it's so mellow and mm-hmm. and he's so interested in the backdrop and the Nixon angle, the way that's played is so subtle. You know, the, the soundtrack. I mean, there's so many elements of this movie that kind of um, build up over time. And like by the end of the film, I thought, wow, this is a really profound film that, it, you know, and I, and I felt like I'd just been taken on a, on a really surprising journey mm-hmm. from start to finish because it did, it seems so insubstantial and almost slow going uh, slow to develop at the beginning and then by the end it was like it hit, hit you like a pile of bricks and you feel like wow i really know this character well and i know all i you know i have a really good sense of all of these people you know in all of their flaws and i think the film itself has flaws too that are kind of baked into the material i mean this is a movie about a man who both does and does not understand women <laughs> and the film i think also has an issue where it doesn't really know what it's doing either you know uh, you know it kind of it mirrors all too well uh the the sort of cluelessness of its lead character but yeah um, i just i just thought the whole thing was just rich and I, and it was a really fascinating film for Beatty, you know which we'll get to because it's so much about him and his complicated relationship to his own persona but uh you're saying uh, genevieve oh yeah no I, I was just i was just agreeing with you the film kind of reflecting uh george as a character who was much dumber than i was <laughs> expecting uh yeah mm-hmm. as, as i as i watched this like uh, just maybe because he was the protagonist maybe because i knew that you know he was based uh, to a certain extent on on Beatty himself and you know, I, I assume there'd be some some vanity at play there, but uh, he's really a, a pretty dim bulb, you know, <laughs> which I think makes the maybe the screwball elements come out a little a little more strongly. But uh, I I like what you were saying, Scott, about how it also sort of the the film's you know pacing and I don't want to say emptiness, but maybe perceived emptiness in certain spots maybe feels like a reflection of that element of George's character. But Keith, you were the one who suggested this film as a, as a pairing. You were reminded of it uh, mm-hmm. by Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So you would appear to have more of a, a connection to it. Uh, so what sparked this for you? Oh, I was really like, I mean, I, I, I just mm-hmm. revisited um, within the last year because I did a ranked list of Hal Ashby films for, for Vulture. Um, mm-hmm. But I mean, it's, I just find it, it's it, it is it's funny and it you know, kind of slowly draws you in, and I felt like as well. We'll get into to reasons why we paired it, but I, I feel like it has like sort of the same kind of kind of deliberate rhythm in some ways as Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. In addition to dealing with the same roughly the same era and some of the same end of the era uh, themes, but yeah, I mean, it takes a couple of years to realize like how uncalculating George is. I really kind of believe him when it, it's almost like these things just kind of happen to him in a way. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, just yeah, it's not not to re- to relieve him of any sort of culpability, but it's like 
I don't know. I just went over there and we and and we started sleeping together. <laughs> it seems like and it's something that's sort of plausible. He's a very uh, beautiful man, and you know these women with um, either too much time on their hands or, or too eager to, to see in George someone he's not, someone who can take care of them, which he's pretty demonstrably incapable of doing. He's barely he can't really take care of himself. I think it's a kind of um, interesting at the end when Jack Warden's character shows up at his house and for as much as he cares he takes in self-presentation he really lives like a slob (laughs) (laughs) yeah well you know I think another one of the key lines for me is when he he comes out and says that he went to you know beauty school for the women you know yeah, I mean, he, sure. he, he he literally just wants to go around and get get laid and that's yeah. the lifestyle he's leading uh, but what he of course is incapable of is understanding uh, you know how his actions are going to affect people emotionally like he that element he hasn't completely worked out he doesn't completely understand it but he it's almost like that part's on you but he also he, he also understands it's understands it a little bit in the in the sense that he's not open with these women about his deceptions like he's not open he he breaks jill's heart you know i mean like like she's genuinely cares about him and he he does what he does and he does it thoughtlessly and recklessly and so um so i, I mean i get the feeling I mean, he's he's great in the moment and then once that moment's over he's useless and, and and incapable of helping anyone else yeah or thinking about anyone else really I find it interesting that you brought up the fact that he, you know, went to beauty school for the women. And I mean, we hear a lot in the film about how he is such a a great hairdresser. And, you know, he, you know, doing hair, uh, he at least talks as if it means something to him. He has this sort of self-regard wrapped up in his identity as someone who who does good hair. But Mm -hmm. I think we're kind of left to wonder how genuine that is versus just something that he tells himself and other people tell him or are told by him that facilitates this lifestyle, like within the context of a quote unquote artist, you know, like I I believe he's Hmm. called an artist a couple times, you know, by women that he is (laughs) sleeping with. So um, yeah, Yeah. I, I don't, and especially in the context of a Hollywood story, where you know superficiality and talent are are really intertwined in so many spaces in Hollywood, I think this is just sort of another space where that sort of mentality maybe plays out in George. So, do you think he's not as good at, at doing hair as, as he thinks he is, or others claim he is? I mean, I, I really feel like Christie's character emerges from mm-hmm. from from the makeover uh, with uh, almost feel like you know it's very happy with a look and almost feeling like it's it's a reinvention for her. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the thing is, they all kind of have the same hairstyle. <laughs> like they all yeah. kind of get a variation on, on a long bob but you know if i can uh give you some hairstyle history you know that which you probably already know but you know that sort of um uh wash and wear uh style you know like that was a little, like revolutionary in the in the late 60s you know the whole vidal sassoon uh sort of revolutionized you know women not having to go to the salon every every week to get their hair curled and blown out and you know shellacked so in the context of the day and like what hairstylists were doing with women's hair, and I'm talking like an expert, I'm not, but I know a little bit about this. Like, I think it was easier to present as an artist because it was what hairstylists were doing or were starting to do was different from what had been done before then. But, you know, all the women he does, they all kind of have variations on a long bob with bangs, you know, like he does a, you know, a nice job. They're even and, uh, you know, he, <laughs> he trims every hair, you know, but 
I don't know, maybe a hairstylist would have a, a different read on the talent on display here, but I don't know that it is particularly revolutionary what he's doing. His blow drying technique, his crotch blow drying technique, I've never <laughs> seen that before. So, so that I can say uh, it was maybe revolutionary. <laughs> Well, he's got the th- he's got that hair dryer like holstered. It's like a western yeah. or something. He comes, <laughs> yeah, comes, he takes comes his hair dryer into, with him. Yeah, yeah, it's like it's like right 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 on his waistline. Um, <laughs> but uh, but I think that if we're gonna see the film as a play on Beatty himself, which I think you just have to, um, that you would probably accept the notion that he's an artist. That he what he's doing is mm-hmm. is uh, better than say what Norman is who's yeah. doing. That Norman is a mediocrity, but Norman also knows how to run a business right Mm -hmm. and norman gets the job done and he's not flaky and and ultimately that type of person is who wins out in the end right yeah when he talks about how he wants to have his own salon so he can have some freedom it's like how could you have more freedom than you have now (laughs) he seems to like just show up at work when he wants to and and leave when he wants to as well yeah i mean what he really wants is just you know acknowledge you know acknowledgement something more to feed his you know, narcissism. Sure. Um, what, I think what, if he gets that loan, he's in big trouble. Do you think there's any meaning to the fact that this movie is called Shampoo when George never shampoos his clients? He always passes that off to someone else to do? Huh. I never considered that. I don't think uh, I have an answer right for in. it either, but I, I think. <laughs> <laughs> no, that is interesting. I mean, other than I think it's just it, it's something that's evocative of salons. Sure. Um, but, oh, and also uh, maybe just like sudsiness, a sort of like maybe soap opera, uh, you know, evocation. But um, yeah. yeah, yeah. I think uh, that's what, what I was more thinking. But I like I like this idea of it, of him <laughs> of him not of him passing off the shampooing to someone else. So in his confessional monologue at the end, George has a line that says that nobody's going to tell me I don't like him very much, referring to the women. Is that true? Does he like all the women in his life? Does is there genuine affection there? I think there's he's I can't make up my mind because. He's, he certainly can simulate affection, but maybe do he actually does care for these women. What's everyone else's read? I mean, I think he cares about the feeling he gets when they are paying attention to him. Like, I think he feels seen in a way that maybe that everyone is craving, probably. But, you know, um, I think that is maybe also why he is so easily distracted by women, because it is he is drawn to whoever is paying him the most attention and giving him that validation that that he wants. I think in the case of Jackie, there is probably some real feeling there more so than with the other two. But I still think it is tied up more in him than in them. Yeah, I I think the less kind read of the situation, if you don't see it as as a tragic love story, that he comes to realization too late, that's the love of his life, which is one way to read it, but also it could be just like that she is slipping away and he yeah. can't stand anyone to slip away out of his orbit. Well, she's sort of the last one standing in a way. I mean, she's True. like she's like the last possible person that he could cling to as he's kind of fallen off the cliff. But I still say that I think there's something special about his relationship to Jackie that's different than his relationship with the other two. I mean, they were they they were former lovers. They're still friendly uh, mm-hmm. in that in that period in, in between. She kind of helps him out when they when they meet each other, you know, by accident in Jack Warden's office, um, and then they kind of get back into each other's arms later. So I think there is something substantial there. But as far as this issue about whether he likes the women that he's with I, my feeling is that he does but not enough not more than he likes himself not enough to where he can sustain a relationship or have 
a relationship be you know a two way street where you can really kind of commit i mean he keeps forgetting you know you have jill showing up you know really reluctant to go to egypt for a a shoot and asking him over and over again about it and he keeps forgetting that she what you know what she's even talking about sure uh where to her it's extremely so important that she could almost not get this role because she wants she wonders what whether she should stay uh or stick around with him who probably wouldn't even notice that she was gone. Right. I think it's interesting that George drives a motorcycle and not a car, because that is such a solo conveyance. I mean, you can, you know, maybe stick someone on the back, but, you know, for the most part, it's it's just, you know, you getting yourself around. You don't have to take uh, any anybody else with you. It's certainly not, you know, any sort of family transport situation. And I think it's just sort of reflective of the fact that George doesn't really have a lot to offer these women beyond, you know, the physical. Um, he, you know, we talked a little about his crappy apartment, you know, he, he doesn't understand money in, in any meaningful way, you know, and then compared to Lester, you know, obviously, he is, quote, unquote, keeping his women, you know, using his, his money and power to keep them the same way that, you know, George is maybe using his physical attractiveness to lure them. But I think, in the end, when, when we see this in uh, Jackie ending up with Lester's character, like, there's a realization that this attractive man is really just an attractive man. And that's all he can really be to these women. He can't be a provider. He can't be a partner. He's a good time guy. <laughs> so yeah, I think that's all signified by the motorcycle is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> Makes sense. And also, I think that you get the sense that he is, you know, getting too old for this. Mm-hmm. by the end, or at least we can see the point coming where he'll be too old for this as well. Do we get any sort of clarification on how old he is supposed to be? I think Beatty was late 30s when he made this, but I imagine, you know, I, I kind of read George as being a little bit younger, but maybe not, a, you know, someone in their, in their 20s anymore. Yeah. He was in his late 30s. He was uh, born in 37. So, mm-hmm. so yes, he was. De- he definitely reads younger to me in this <laughs> movie than that. Uh, I, I would I would have put him younger, but I mean he was also still a pretty beautiful dude. <laughs> uh, I mean at this time he's that, still a very beautiful that dude. That, that guy's hair is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous hair. And <laughs> this movie, he didn't even really do much with it. This movie, it's just kind of like exists as this big uh, intimidating mass on his head. But it's 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 uh, I don't know. I don't know. We got ritually sacrificed to give him that hair, but it was pretty great. I kept thinking about though early Warren Beatty and what a sensation he was as a screen presence you know I I recently I mean Splendor in the Grass is obviously his huge you know breakthrough his first film Uh, but I watched a film he did the year after that called All Fall Down that John Frankenheimer directed and it's just he's you know this kind of the type of guy who nobody would have any who screwed up and screwed everybody over so many times that nobody would have anything to do with him except he's just beautiful he's like a beautiful person that that every man woman and child wants to it wants to give another chance to and that's like that kind of that's sort of what Beatty is sort of riding out in this in as far as it can possibly go in this movie on top of his off-screen you know uh, persona as well which which feeds so much into this movie you know this is definitely about the uh the trials of being a, a beautiful but shallow person. Mm-hmm. So in his essay for the Criterion edition uh, of this film, uh, Frank Rich writes about how, how well it's aged. Uh, George is a womanizer. The film's very much about women in his life objecting to that in ways that, that you can see sting him, at least 
in the moment. And, you know, well, 1975, Rich also notes, it might have played as sort of like the end of a period of American conservatism with Nixon out of the White House. But it now kind of plays kind of prophetic. I mean, this mingling of, you know, Hollywood elites and, um, you know, show business and politics and, and the sort of, um, you know, under, uh, bedrock conservatism that's always going to come to the surface no matter, or possibly always come to the surface no matter how much the times change. Do you, do you see it as a film that now has something to say about how we live now as well? I was very struck by the moment early in the film where uh, Jill is talking about whether she uh, wants to have kids and says, uh, you know, a a friend of hers said the world is too overpopulated and hypocritical to have children, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, which is a stance that I am, you know, very familiar with from here in, in 2019. So I think it's interesting that that sort of cynicism about the future, whether it has been there in the uh, ensuing 50 years the whole time, or if it has just bubbled back up again, you know, I can't, I can't quite say. I definitely, that moment sort of, you know, pulled me up short a little bit. Well, I couldn't help but notice during the party for Lester, with all of Lester's Republican buddies, there is, of course, an image of Ronald Reagan, who mm-hmm. who was not president when uh, Shampoo, he was five years away from being uh, elected president when Shampoo came out, but he was a rising uh, figure with the, within the Republican Party. He's from California. He's an actor. He was governor uh, of California at the time of the movie, at the r- time the movie set, rather. Yeah, at the time the movie set. And so, uh, but I mean, there is that connection then between, you know, we think about Hollywood as being removed or like this liberal, you know, enclave in the, in the country, and yet it, it has produced presidents conservative presidents i mean it has with trump in a way i mean trump is definitely is a new york guy but he is a hollywood figure in that and that he's a tv he's somebody who's come to us through the television Mm -hmm. he's a television president he's being there basically that (laughs) if we want to talk about hal ashby movies uh, trump's presidency is sort of like a malicious version of being there Mm -hmm. um so that definitely stood out to me in terms of the, the connection between then and now but at the same time, I mean, this this film is very much of its time, uh, very much you know about a very specific night uh, in 1968, but also you know a film that was made in 1975 and, and looks like it and feels like it too. And so, uh, in that sense, it, it you know didn't necessarily feel that that resonant or, or feel like it was connected in some, or prophetic in some way to the, the age in which we live. So I was trying to think, uh, kind of unrelated, but I was trying to think what how this movie would play as a 1968 comedy. Lots of like uh, uh, swinging doors and, and uh, slamming doors and, and uh, uh, really outrageous hippies as opposed to just relatively outrageous hippies in, in this movie, you know? Yeah, it's kind of like, a, it's, everything is so at half speed though. It's so like a, it's so, mm-hmm. so like a screwball comedy or bedroom farce or something, but very played Hal Ashby style, play, or, you know, which is a much different tone and a much different pace everyone has to pause to react to everything it's not just sort of like shock and and you know uh, yeah i like i think kind of the signature moment being that very slowly opening refrigerator door as jack warden's character looks on and 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 it's sort of cheering on these two random people he thinks uh having sex and only to realize that yeah that's not <laughs> those, are, those aren't random people at all yeah. <laughs> um but i mean you could see i mean what would billy you know something like billy wilder do with this material sure it'd be completely it would be great it'd be funny it it would be a totally different approach probably meaner too yeah i I was surprised how 
I mean, Beatty and Ashby were were very close friends to the end of Ashby's life. I mean, this was a huge hit and and, and all that. But I, I'm I'm a little I'd be interested to know what the behind the scenes story was. Whether Beatty and Town were happy with the, the way their material was being handled because it's a, it, it has a uh, I think a different quality. Uh, as a piece of filmmaking that does as a piece of screenwriting. I, I don't know all the behind-the-scenes details, but it sounds like there was a fair amount of push and pull between Beatty and Town. Kind of both were working on their own versions of the screenplay at one point, and then like <laughs> mm-hmm. they had to synthesize them into a single version. And like, I mean, Hashby's interesting because he doesn't. You know how Ashby film when you see it, but you can't necessarily pin down. I think I think you're right about the, it's the pace as much as the actual style as anything else. Mm-hmm. But he is he was always a great editor. I mean, just just the way this film cuts together, um, just the rhythms of it, and and the way these sort of episodes kind of kind of flow into one another. He's he's very good at that. I'm reminded of a bunch of films with this one mm-hmm. um, that followed it i mean one is like the look of the movie and even a little bit of its meanness it's not that as mean as this one but it looked right it seemed like the the film greenberg the noah bombach mm-hmm. film greenberg took a lot from like the texture of the film and uh but the other thing that it reminded me of in kind of an interesting compare and contrast way was that the unbearable lightness of being because i mean there there's a movie about characters who want to go through life just kind of indulging themselves Sexually, I mean, the difference being in that case, the characters played by Daniel Day-Lewis and Lena Olin have entered into an arrangement to be doing that. I mean, and then they break Juliet Binoche's heart, but but they've entered into an arrangement, and so no one's breaking anyone's hearts. But you know that happens anyway. Um, but but that film also has that juxtaposition with history as well. I mean, where, where you have that whole scene in what the um, in Czechoslovakia with the, the tanks spring, and everything. Yeah. yeah, right, exactly. So um, it's a, a, interesting kind of like to see how those two things kind of go together, even just by way of contrast, because I, I think there's something um, uniquely thoughtless about George's behavior here. <laughs> now I want to watch that movie again. We should find a pairing for an unbearable lightness of being. It's yeah. <laughs> a good one. Yeah, it is good. We already did. We already did one Kaufman, though. I guess, but we did. We did. But he's he 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 mixes it up a lot. Yeah. So there's gonna be, there'll, 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 and we we talked about a pairing that might have uh, involved Rising Sun. If Rising Sun turned out well, that would have been a Philip Kaufman movie too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but that was that's for another thing. Uh, finally, I, I just want to just throw this out. What's who has the best outfit in this movie, and, and who has the best hair? I genuinely kind of short circuited this question by pointing out that all the hair is kind of the same. <laughs> Well, I mean, I, I have a definitive answer to this. The best outfit in the movie is Jackie's election night outfit. That that mm. that black dress with the back, the the high cut front and the low cut back. She looks amazing, the, hands down. Is there even yeah. another answer? Who has the best uh, outfit? Yeah, no, we can just end it there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean everything. You know. One could talk about Goldie Hawn in this film. Goldie Hawn is lovely. I loved her character a lot. I like Jill. Seems like you know, maybe the best person of this group, you sure. know? Mm-hmm. You know, and I did like her little sort of short sweater dress that she went to her audition and that, that was that was cute, but it was nothing even close to what, what Jackie was offering. I love how the two male options in this movie are uh, Warren Beatty or Jack Warden. <laughs> <laughs> like Jack Warden, not just Jack Warden, but Jack Warden sort of unflatteringly dressed and with a horrible, like, well, is it a wig? Do we know? It's hard, it's Boy, hard to tell. Money really gets you a long way, yeah, right? Exactly. Uh, yeah, he's kind of a jerk. To, to, he's a jerk, too, in his own yeah. way. Um, he's got muscle, um, too. I, he shows up with muscle at the end. 
Also, uh, I, I guess I can point her out via her outfit, but uh, Carrie Fisher's, you know, tennis whites uh, are, are, are <laughs> memorable, perhaps because they are on baby Carrie Fisher making oh, her no. film debut, right? Yep. I believe. Yeah. I believe so. Yeah. Uh, yeah. She performed with her mom. I just didn't want to end this without without talking about her and wondering if the little back and forth between her and George of him commenting on the the parts of her that look like her mom you know, obviously that that is uh, upsetting to her for reasons specific to the movie. But I also wondered if it was a, a little comment on on Fisher, the actress. As, oh, as for well. sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think it's a meta moment. I think you know yeah. Carrie Fisher is someone who has a complicated relationship with her mother. Uh, that, that's, that's easy casting. Yeah. For, for this movie. <laughs> All right. Well, with that we, we're going to wind things down, but we'll be right back with feedback after the break. Now it's time for feedback when our listeners weigh in with their responses to recent episodes and anything else in the world of film. We received the same observation about the art of self-defense from two listeners, Kyle and Jake, so we felt the need to address it. We'll let Jake's letter stand in for both. Scott, care to read it? Sure. Uh, Jake writes, Was I the only one who felt that the style of the dialogue in this movie was reminiscent of several Yorgos Lanthimos films? There was something about the strange, short, declarative statements the characters made in this that reminded me of The Lobster and also Killing of a Sacred Deer. I found it amusing for the most part, but also a little alienating. Was wondering if that comparison holds up for anyone else. Keith, what do you think? Jake, I have an answer for you. You are not the only one (laughs) <laughs> to feel that way because we got another letter about it. You know, that comparison had not really occurred to me until we got these letters. But uh, yeah, I, I see it. I can see that. And, you know, it, it's it's a tough film to pin down. You know, it, it's it's a film with its own kind of kind of feel to it. But the, but the sort of like, you know, sort of stilled it observations, like and like you say, declarative sentences, it does does harken back to Yeah, like films. unnatural. Right. Unnatural, but also kind of darkly funny and mm-hmm. kind of disorienting in a way. I mean, I th- it's something that Lanthimos is very careful with. Language is so, something that's so important to his movies. Uh, Dogtooth, of course, is, is a movie about parents who give different meanings to words to have the you know their children have grow up with different understandings of what what words mean and what certain symbols mean and and uh they just kind of build this false world around them and so this is obviously something that lanthimos cares about quite a bit and i think i think you could say that does carry over to uh, the art of self-defense, which is also you know about this environment that is very insular, uh, whether it's Jesse Eisenberg's office or this dojo, um, where there's not a whole lot of outside input, where it's this very strange place doesn't that isn't like your ordinary strip mall karate spot. You know, it's got a it's got a, a whole nother. You know, it's more like Fight Club as we as we made in our comparison, and uh, the filmmaker Riley Stearns kind of finds the right language to match that so it's very it's very stylized and you know perhaps it it must be lanthimos ask if we got two letters about it sure why don't we catch that i don't know what's wrong with us we have good listeners all right well we always appreciate it when our listeners share their thoughts their recommendations if you feel so inclined we can feature your response on a future episode to reach us you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll talk about another end-of-an-era L.A. story, Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in 
Hollywood. Look for that next Tuesday, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. Even better still, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Find us at nextpictureshow.net, follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow, and follow us on Twitter at at nextpicturepod, so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, please remember there are towels in the bathhouse, but... Be careful when you go up there. You know it seems the more we talk about it, it only makes it worse to live.